This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Are activists turning American schools into communist training camps? Joseph Stalin once said, Education is a weapon whose effects depends on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed. Our listeners can be sure that communists, whether they be in China, Cuba, Moscow, or anywhere else, have not ignored Stalin's ideas. Throughout the world, they have diligently worked to take over education. Unlike many other Marxist and communist doctrines, this one makes sense. In the United States, and much of the world, education is the most socialized segment of society, the area of greatest government control. Even private schools in the United States are staffed with those who meet state certification requirements. To get that certification, teachers and administrators must attend state-approved schools of education. These often become indoctrination centers. Sometimes, though, the pattern is more direct. Mr. Edwin Benson described the Chinese government's attempts to influence American education in his essay, The Red Chinese Are Turning America's Best Schools Into Little Red Classrooms. Most educated Americans would be happy to hear that their local schools offer students a chance to learn Mandarin Chinese. Given China's growing importance, many opportunities in business, academia, and diplomacy are open to those with such skills. However, offering foreign languages, or world languages to use the preferred academic term, is difficult for modern schools. They require teachers with specific training. Relatively few students want to take them. Since those students tend to be high achievers in other disciplines, matching a class of those students with that particular teacher creates scheduling nightmares. For instance, what happens if three French Level 3 students also want to take marine biology and the only section of both classes occurs simultaneously? Therefore, the classes tend to be small and therefore expensive. Thus, Despite the undoubted advantages to students, relatively few schools offer classes in Mandarin Chinese. The same applies to Japanese and Russian. Even courses in French and German are increasingly rare. Assume, then, that a gentleman walks into the superintendent's office offering to underwrite the expense of offering Mandarin Chinese. The nonprofit organization that the gentleman represents will also help locate a qualified teacher and provide a set of up-to-date materials. The school need only provide the classroom and the students. At first glance, this is a no-brainer. The superintendent gets a chance to announce a groundbreaking program. The school board can boast about superiority over other area school districts. The students gain opportunities that few others share. The parents like it, and so do the taxpayers. Everybody wins. However, lurking behind the labyrinth of nonprofit organizations lies the Communist Chinese Party, CCP, with its nearly limitless resources. For the CCP, there is no desire to further the education of U.S. students. They want two things, to burnish China's international reputation and to propagandize America's young. This agenda is documented in a report released by Parents Defending Education, PDE, 
in August 2023. The report, titled Little Red Classrooms, China's Infiltration of American K-12 Schools, is remarkably specific. It backs up the assertions with legal documents and written agreements between school systems and sponsors. It ties those sponsors to the CCP. The report should cause grave concern about the state of American schools. Quote, The People's Republic of China fostered relationships with American K-12 schools through grants, sister school partnerships, and other programming since at least 2009. Parents defending education tracked affiliations in 143 schools across 34 states and Washington, D.C., and at least seven are still active. Financial exchanges between K-12 schools and the Chinese government range from a few thousand dollars to, in Thomas Jefferson High School's case, more than a million dollars. Located in Alexandria, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology is 11.2 miles southwest of the U.S. Capitol building. According to U.S. News and World Report's ranking, it is the best school in Virginia and number five in the nation. Its overall score is 99.97 out of 100. Quote, The school offers courses like DNA science, advanced marine biology, automation and robotics, architectural drawing and design, research statistics, and AP calculus. TJHSST boasts 15 specialized research labs, ranging from astronomy and astrophysics to oceanography and geophysical systems, unquote. Where 54% of Virginia's students are proficient in mathematics, Thomas Jefferson boasts a perfect 100%. The same score holds for reading and science. All of its students take at least one advanced placement course. Thomas Jefferson High's foreign language program also shines. That department employs 13 faculty members who teach French, German, Japanese, Latin, Russian, Spanish, and Chinese. The school has also received considerable money from the Chinese government. Of course, that money has not come directly from the CCP, but rather through various other organizations. Parents Defending Education summed up these contributions in March 2023. Quote, Fairfax County Public Schools TJ Partnership Fund has received over $1 million worth of donations from Chinese interests since 2014. Documents reveal that the 501c3 nonprofit operating out of Thomas Jefferson High School, TJ, received funding amounts of $500,000 plus from Sherbel HK and $250,000 plus from Tsinghua University in Beijing and the Amazon Foundation, respectively, unquote. The full name of Sherbel HK is Sherbel Department Store Holding China LTD. Its corporation charter is registered in the Cayman Islands. However, its primary field of action is in China. 
According to PDE, the company and its subsidiaries are principally engaged in department store operations, property development, and provision of property development consulting services in the People's Republic of China. Unquote. Readers who might ask, why would a Chinese real estate investment firm be sending money to a high school in Virginia? Are in good company. Thomas Jefferson's connection to the Amazon Education and Cultural Exchange Foundation makes more sense. Despite its Occidental-sounding name, it too has significant Chinese links. Its executive vice chair, Sean Zhang, acknowledged the foundation's role in establishing the, quote, first STEM high school in China, unquote. Until recently, most of the money passed from the CCP through university-level outreaches called Confucius Institutes. It was one of the institutes, then, that passed the money to the schools. However, the institutes are not projects of Chinese altruism. On July 17, 2020, Attorney General William Barr openly criticized them. Quote, The Chinese Communist Party also seeks to infiltrate, censor, or co-opt American academic and research institutions. For example, dozens of American universities host Chinese government-funded Confucius Institutes, which have been accused of pressuring host universities to silence discussion or cancel events on topics considered controversial by Beijing. Unquote. Almost immediately, many institutes ceased operation. It is unlikely, however, that the Chinese have abandoned the goal. Most likely, the public notice only signaled a change in methodology. As Little Red Classroom shows, the amount that Thomas Jefferson High received is unusually high. Grants between ten dollars and $20,000 are far more common. However, the intentions behind that largesse are much the same. By providing books and other materials as well as recommending teachers, the CCP is spreading its tentacles into classrooms from Maine to California. So the question might be asked, how can the Chinese gain influence over American education? There are several answers. First, they deal with people who don't see China as a threat. The vast majority of public school administrators already possess liberal inclinations. Such people, generally, are far less likely to recognize a leftist tilt in instructional materials. Second, the Chinese understand the art of subtlety. The CCP doesn't stamp Chairman Mao's likeness on the covers of these books. No one will find the virulent statements of Mao's little red book in them. Instead, there will be statements about fellowship, community, and partnership that are easy for young people to accept. Third, the indirect distribution of money provides what politicians call plausible deniability. As seen in the Thomas Jefferson School, the CCP passes the cash to an international corporation. The corporation then funds an ostensibly private foundation. The foundation bankrolls the university program. The university then makes a grant to local school systems. Such precautions make it easy for supporters to accuse critics of seeing a communist under every bed. However, the concealed nature of this threat only makes it more dangerous. 
The CCP is well aware of that fact. It is a truth, however, that passes unnoticed in the halls of academic bureaucracy. It makes sense that socialism's deepest inroads into education come in the state most dominated by the left, California. The state's voters reliably elect legislatures with overwhelming Democratic majorities. Its largest industries, computer technology and entertainment, are dominated by leftists. When the critical race theories folks try to spread their doctrines, they find a warm and happy reception in the halls of California's Department of Education. Therefore, woke ideology finds its way into all aspects of state-imposed curricula. Mr. Benson discusses the effects on math instruction in his essay, California's Controversial Math Curriculum Focuses on Dismantling White Supremacy. Some depraved souls at the California Department of Education insist that its schools reduce every area, including mathematics, to the study of race. How race plays a determinative role in the study of mathematics is baffling. Nonetheless, the 13-year effort to insert race into the California mathematics framework continues. The saga began in 2010, when the California Common Core State Standards for Mathematics, CACCSSM, were drafted. These were updated in 2013. The standards' introduction began optimistically, quote, the CACCSSM are designed to be robust, linked within and across grades, and relevant to the real world. With California students fully prepared for the future, our students will be positioned to compete successfully in the global economy. Unquote. There is little in the 154-page document from 2013 that would surprise anyone. The sequence of skills recommended by the CACCSSM is coherent and logical. A student who learned the required skills would be well-suited for college. There was little, if any, mention of race. However, one basic tenet of wokedom was present in abundance. The fault for any failure lies with those in authority. For instance, the above quotation implies that students play no active role. The school positions students for future success. However, this curriculum proved faulty. As the Los Angeles Times noted, quote, On national tests, California is below the norm compared to other states. An estimated 23% of the state's students achieve proficiency in math. Unquote. Therefore, over three out of four students miss the mark. In every grade book, 23% is a failing grade. In the following sentence, the Times offers the liberal talking point. Quote, there are also wide gaps among groups, with students from more prosperous backgrounds doing better, and white and Asian students have higher test scores than black and Latino students. Unquote. True to form, the primary reason must be racism. However, 
That raises an unanswerable question of who is the racist. Any taint of racism in public education has been anathema for at least 60 years. Today's students or their parents never had the misfortune of having a genuinely racist teacher. The idea of a secret cabal of math teachers scheming against black and Latino students is simply unbelievable. Critical race theory provides the answer. So-called structural racism. Structural racism is difficult to define. The Cambridge Dictionary defines it as, quote, laws, rules, or official policies in a society that result in and support a continued unfair advantage to some people and unfair or harmful treatment of others based on race, unquote. Apparently, people perpetuate this evil automatically by obeying the rules of a racist structure. Teachers who never uttered a derogatory word can, nonetheless, spread racism by reflecting the underlying attitudes of the presumably racist public school system. In this mental la-la land, there is no need to prove racism the fact that the outcomes for certain minority groups are lower than others is sufficient. Thus, in 2019, California decided to eradicate structural racism from mathematics instruction. Two years of effort resulted in the state's publication of a Pathway to Equitable Math Instruction, Dismantling Racism in Mathematics Instruction, first published in May 2021. The 83-page pathway justifies itself in its second sentence. Quote, The framework for deconstructing racism in mathematics offers essential characteristics of anti-racist math educators and critical approaches to dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms by making visible the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture with respect to math. Unquote. On page 7, readers learn, quote, White supremacy culture infiltrates math classrooms in everyday teacher actions. Coupled with the beliefs that underlie these actions, they perpetuate educational harm on Black, Latinx, and multilingual students, denying them full access to the world of mathematics. Unquote. Goal number one is, quote, Dismantling White Supremacy Culture in Math Classrooms, unquote. To facilitate this task, it lists 19 criteria to help teachers recognize racism in their teaching. The first of these is telling, quote, There is a greater focus on getting the right answer than understanding concepts and reasoning, unquote. Not only is this idea not racist, but it also sets up a false dichotomy. There is no difference between understanding the concepts and reasoning and using those concepts to calculate the correct answer. Consider a simple calculation. 7 times 8 equals 56. The concept behind it is that adding 7 plus 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 7 yields 56. Of course, no one calculates this problem in this longer, more cumbersome form. 
It is easier and more efficient to memorize the multiplication table, as children of all races did for generations. Of course, most math premises are far more complicated, but the principle is the same. The students will get the correct answer if the process is applied consistently and the calculations are accurate. Separating the process from the correct answer is foolish and futile. Indeed, students' understanding of the process is determined by getting the correct answer. If a given answer is incorrect, the student either miscalculated or doesn't understand the process. Some students do find this frustrating. For others, it is exhilarating. Some pupils are inclined toward mathematics, and others are not. Each person has a God-given set of interests and abilities. The education system simply cannot grasp this concept. Children are not beakers in a science lab into which a specific reaction results from mixing the appropriate chemicals. The educrats treat teaching and learning as sciences. The prescribed teaching method should produce an identical outcome for each student. When it doesn't, they are baffled. Unable to accept an explanation with a religious basis, they cast about for another. Since the liberal education schools favor a leftist reading of history by turning everything into class struggle, critical race theory presents racism as an explanation. Unfortunately, there is not enough space here to discuss the other 18 criteria at similar length. California translates the goals of pathway into classroom experience through the California Mathematics Framework. The entire 983-page document is simply unreadable. However, the titles of some chapters provide insights into its emphasis. Chapter 2, for instance, is Teaching for Equity and Engagement. Chapter 9 is titled Structuring School Experiences for Equity and Engagement. It is followed by Supporting Educators in Offering Equitable and Engaging Mathematics Instruction. Chapter 13 continues with Instructional Materials to Support Equitable and Engaging Learning of the California Common Core State Standards for Mathematics. Amazingly, the document's multi-page glossary does not define engage, engaging, or engagement. However, the definition of equity is eye-opening. Quote, Equity refers to fairness in education rather than sameness. Drawing from Gutierrez, 2012, equity includes four dimensions in mathematics education. 1. Access to tangible resources. 2. Participation in quality mathematics classes and success in them. 3. Student identity development in mathematics and... 4. Attention to Relations of Power. Unquote. However, finding out what Gutierrez 2012 meant by those four dimensions is difficult. Appendix B, Works Cited, mentions no author by that name. Nor does the glossary define fairness, tangible resources, quality mathematics classes, student identity development, or relations of power. Despite the high-flown rhetoric, 
California's new curriculum stands no chance of success. All of its answers are incorrect because they are based on the wrong premises. Its goals are political, not educational. The Wall Street Journal correctly referred to it as containing, quote, weapons of math destruction. The indoctrination described above extends into extracurricular pursuits. Recently, an attempt to eliminate voluntary prayer after school sporting events was narrowly turned back by the U.S. Supreme Court. Transgender tyranny sinks its tentacles into all athletic programs. Satanists tried to present their beliefs as simply another set of ideas that students might want to try on to see if they fit. ReturnToOrder.org has written on all of these events. However, the field of high school debate may be the best hidden attempt to turn America's students into social justice warriors. Generally, high school debate teams are made up of politically inclined students who nonetheless don't fit well into other aspects of high school life. Many of these students are especially susceptible to socialist ideas and Marxist dogma. Mr. Benson describes the intellectual assault against these vulnerable students in his essay, should high school debaters be forced to promote Marxism and Leninism? I was dismayed when I read a recent article in the New York Post titled, Woke Judges Say There Are Topics High School Kids Can't Debate. Like many students, I benefited immensely from my experience as a high school debater. In addition to the basics of public speaking, debate helps students learn to think on their feet, look at an issue from various perspectives, use evidence to back up assertions, and evaluate the effectiveness of multiple arguments. In my teaching career, I worked with many such students and took a role in judging many debates. Most young people said the effort was fruitful in their personal lives and enhanced their academic and professional prospects. I think I can safely say that I would never be in the position that I am without my high school debating experience. So I was dismayed when I read that recent article in New York Post. The title, Woke Judges Say There Are Topics High School Students Can't Debate, encapsulates so many of the education system's deficiencies in the age of political correctness run amok. A brief explanation may be helpful for those who never participated in the event. A team debate on the high school level consists of four students, two pairs coming from separate schools. The debate must be based on some aspect of the national topic, decided by the National Speech and Debate Association, NSDA. The 2023 topic is Resolved the United States federal government should substantially increase its security cooperation with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in one or more of the following areas, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, or cybersecurity. Two students, labeled the affirmative, will argue that some aspect of the topic needs to change. Part of their task is to lay out a plan by which that change can take place. The other team, the negative, argues in favor of the status quo. Each student speaks twice during the hour-long process. He is also cross-examined by a member of the other team. 
One essential aspect of the competition is for students to apply expert opinions to every point they make. For instance, the student might say, Last year, former Assistant Secretary of State Horatio Blunderbuss argued that NATO is obsolete. In many tournaments, students are to prepare both sides of the debate because the side that each team argues is chosen moments before the event begins. I always had, and still have, a problem with this practice, because it forces students to argue in favor of a position in which they may not believe. I hold that this promotes a relativistic view of the world in which truth matters less than crafting the argument. However, I acknowledge the counter-argument that this practice forces the debaters to know and understand both sides of the topic does hold some weight. Although the judges seldom speak to the debaters, their role is crucial. When I was debating, the judge was supposed to be someone about whom the debaters knew nothing. If the judge did happen to know one or more of the debaters, the rule said that the judge should notify the organizers and request a substitution. There were also certain expectations that the students had of the judges. First, that they would be objective. As the adult in the room, the judge was supposed to check their own opinions at the door and evaluate the arguments made in the students' speeches, their speaking abilities, the evidence offered, and the other team's counter-arguments. That situation has apparently changed. The article's author mentions that today's high school debaters can use an NSDA website called Tab Room to gain insights about the judge that they are about to meet. Most of the material is relatively generic. I gleaned the following items from several different profiles. Do what you do best. I will try my best to adapt and be unbiased. I care much more about argument quality than argument type. Don't claim something is abusive unless it is. Debate is a speaking game where teams must construct logically sound, valid arguments to defend while challenging the same effort from their opponents. And last, your job is to make sure you define the framework of the round. Don't assume that I have read your advocacy authors. Spell it out. Frankly, such a practice holds the potential for more harm than good. The personality and preferences of a particular judge are irrelevant in a situation that is supposed to be about developing students' abilities. However, this is the Internet age, and I suspect that there is nothing wrong with students knowing what the judges want to see. As long as the advice applies to both teams, any harm would be minimal. However, it seems impossible for some judges not to use the Internet to further their own political views. One such so-called judge is featured in the Post's article. Her name, unlikely as it may seem, is Lila Lavender. Miss Lavender wants to ensure that her opinions will be at the center of the debate. Quote, Before anything else, including being a debate judge, I am a Marxist-Leninist Maoist. I have realized as a result of this that I cannot check the revolutionary proletarian science at the door when I'm judging. I will no longer evaluate and thus ever vote for rightist, capitalist, imperialist positions and arguments. Meaning, 
arguments and positions which defend the bourgeoisie's class dictatorship, monopoly capitalism, and thus imperialism, from a right-wing political form, i.e. the politics, ideology, and practice of the right-wing of the bourgeoisie. Unquote. Her position, boiled down to its essential ingredients, is that her opinion is the only one that matters. To disagree with her jaundiced view of the world is automatically wrong. The only tolerable arguments are those that fit into her worldview. The event is no longer a debate, but a revolutionary chorus of forced approval. It is the difference between a fair trial and a Maoist struggle session. It is grossly unfair to put students in front of such a so-called judge. It is, however, very much in line with the whole woke mindset. This concludes, are activists turning American schools into communist training camps? Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. T.F.P.